What I'd like to do before I introduce Randy and Joan and bring them up is, uh, is just help to provide some context for what we're doing this weekend and why. You know, uh, many of you guys have been with us uh, since the very, very beginning. Others have joined at, at different points along the way, but some of you were with us when we set out and started this church, uh, you know, four years ago or so. And we came from a church, Christ Church, both in Mandarin and Christ Church East, that gave us uh, a, an incredible gospel theology and heritage that we brought with us here. We had as a, a unifying mission statement among our three churches that we believe that, uh, that Jesus is making all things new and we want to be a part of his renewal of all things, right? So the gospel is a big gospel. It's more than even just uh, reconciling people to Jesus, as wonderful as that is, that it's about making all things new. And so we came uh, from East Jacksonville and South Jacksonville down into uh, the core of the city. And what's happened over the last several years is that God's been opening our eyes to exactly what it means for us to seek the renewal of all things, right? And it looks different as we've learned, right? As we come down into the core neighborhoods of the city, as we come into Lackawanna and some of the neighborhoods where we live and work, that it does look different and it takes a different shape. And so what we've been trying to do uh, as we establish this church and as we seek to be obedient to God and sensitive to, to the place he's placed us, is to learn what does it mean for us as a people to seek the renewal of all things in the center of our city. And so some of the things that that's meant, it's, it's made a few things unavoidable. We've realized that if we're going to uh, really seek to be about the renewal of all things and the remaking of everything that's broken, that in a city like ours, it means that we seek to deal with issues of race, and reconciliation. It means that we deal with issues of poverty uh, and seeking to serve and love the poor uh, and establish uh, better and safer neighborhoods. And so it's called us, it's called me as a pastor, uh, out beyond myself a good bit, out of areas of, uh, that I felt prepared for in seminary, uh, out of areas of comfort. And so I'll just draw your attention. You should have grabbed one of these on your way in. Uh, if not, they'll be there all weekend. But on the back, you have your schedule on the front and on the back, you have basically the three elements of our vision. The first uh, is seeking uh, personal transformation in Christ, right? That as much as we talk about seeking to be a cross-cultural church and a church that's inclusive of the poor, above all of that is a mission to see men and women and children born again into new life in Christ, right? It's the, the, the center of the Great Commission is that Jesus tells the church to go and to make disciples of all nations. And so we don't want to lose sight of, the, of sharing our faith and evangelism uh, helping people to form and to grow up towards Christian maturity. That's a huge part of what we're about as a church. Secondly, an uncommon fellowship of faith. You know, you may have been with us. Uh, we preached through Ephesians. I know you guys remember my sermons for months and months afterwards. Um, you just chew on them. Um, but if you remember preaching through Ephesians, one of the things that stood out to us was that for Paul, the Apostle Paul, building a Jew and Gentile community together in Ephesus was for him a key part of what the gospel was, right? He didn't say, you know what, I can get more converts if I build a Jewish church over here and a Gentile church over here. He said, no, no, Jew and Gentile together in one new family of God is a witness to the surrounding neighborhood, to the surrounding cities, that the gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. And so we seek to be an uncommon fellowship, people that love and hang out with each other and build community with each other aside, outside of the lines of class, culture, race, all of those things that so often divide the human family and the Christian family. And then finally, we want to be about the flourishing of our neighbors. We exist not just for ourselves, but for our neighbors, both in this Lackawanna community uh, and the neighborhoods where, all the neighborhoods where we live. And so those three guideposts uh, have sought to kind of inform some of our decisions and lead us going forward. 
And one thing that's happened is you get into this, and you, as, a, as a young pastor, you go, okay, how do we do it? Right? It's one thing to, to write about it. It's one thing to think about it. It's one thing to dream about it and to start to take steps towards it. But who is there in our circles that's, that's down the road and has done it and uh, has both the successes and the scars and the hard times uh, to share some wisdom? And in the PCA, which is the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination we're in, if you start asking around and you go, hey, here's the things we're trying to do as a church, who should we talk to? Uh, all the roads end up eventually leading you back to Randy and Joan neighbors. And so um, Randy and Joan uh, have planted and pastored a church, New City Fellowship in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, which they will tell us some about uh, over the course of this weekend. Uh, they now work uh, for the, uh, the denomination as a whole, leading something they call the New City Network which seeks to establish and encourage churches a lot like ours that are trying to uh, be these kinds of churches in their communities. And so, Randy and Joan, if you would, please come on up. And I will say a prayer, and then I will sit down. Guys, thanks so much for being here. It's, a, it's an honor to have you. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, I thank you for Randy and Joan. I thank you for uh, the legacy of fruitful ministry in their lives. I thank you for the ways that they have learned more of your grace and your goodness uh, through hard times and good of planting a church in uh, inner city Chattanooga. Lord, I thank you as, as, a, as a baby church that's on the front end of your call in this area. Uh, I thank you that there are mentors. I thank you that there are uh, faithful men and women uh, that are a few steps down the road from us that have uh, so much to share. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us open ears and soft hearts and open minds as we listen. Give them wisdom and grace and courage as they speak. Give them perseverance. I know it's a long weekend and a lot, to, uh, a lot of words to share. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uphold them and give them your grace. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. Uh, speak to us through them. Speak to us through your word. We, your servants, uh, listen for your command, and we want to follow you and be obedient and faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, that's yours, Lenny. Mm -hmm. uh, for our first session, mm -hmm. Sorry. <laughs> Jones often caused me trouble. <laughs> um, for our first session, Joan is going to uh, kick it off. And I, we just want to say, you know, we're, we're experts. We are experts because we're from out of town. And that's probably our only qualification uh, to be experts. But in, the, in over the weekend, we're going to share, hopefully, we're going to share out of our weakness, uh, out, of, out of the struggles we've had, our failures, and out of the mercy and grace of God, uh, to our lives personally, uh, as, a, as a married couple, uh, in our church, and in the ministry we have. So we, we want to set you straight about that, that uh, our qualification is really only in the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace of God as we have encountered the world in, in culture, in um, poverty, in conflict, and those kind of things. And we're, we're here tonight to tell you that Jesus has it under control. He really is the Lord of heaven and earth. And uh, our confidence is in him. Our confidence 
for you as well as a church, as you take on these challenges, uh, I would just say to you, don't be afraid. Uh, God is bigger than whatever you're going to come up against. Most of you already know that. If you're in Jesus Christ, you already at least take that by faith. Uh, but I will tell you, we have found that to be true. Jesus is greater than the problems that have come against us. And they have been big and powerful at different times in our life. But we're here because uh, we love the Lord and he has saved us. So now you get to hear first from my wonderful wife, Joan. Yeah, Randy has asked me to share a little bit of our story, and I'll start with my story. Um, as I was thinking about what I would say this evening, and uh, be warned, I'm not the world's most dynamic speaker. It's not my favorite thing to do, to be up here talking to y'all, but I do it sometimes. <laughs> but I was reminded, um, several years ago, our church had a music conference, and it was like the first time I think we'd had a, a music conference that was where we invited people from all over the country to come join us. And we had this wonderful musician come and be our, our keynote speaker. And the first night we were there, he got up and um, he was telling us his experience in music. This guy was a fabulous musician. He played with people like Wynton Marsalis, you know. He was, like, amazing. But when he got up to tell us his life, his story, he started off telling us about when he was four. And an hour later... He was like 15. <laughs> it was like the longest night ever. <laughs> so beware. Somebody's just going to tell you a bit of their story. <laughs> I could be up here a long time. No, I won't. I promise to be very brief. But um, I will start with, I was born. I was born. So, yeah, that was part of the joke. Okay. <laughs> he started at four. I started with when I was born. I was born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. Um, back in this, okay, I'm not going to tell you what year, <laughs> but um, Newark was in the process of changing uh, from being mostly white to mostly African-American. The Great Migration happened in our city. Um, and my parents and, well, mostly my grandparents were part of that Great Migration. And that's how we ended up in New Jersey. But, um, I'm one of seven children. Um, my parents uh, did, the, did a pretty good job, I guess. I think I'm a pretty cool person of raising us. Um, but there was a lot of dysfunction in our home. Um, when I was three years old, we moved to the housing projects of Newark, New Jersey, um, which was a great government experiment that failed. Thankfully, the projects that I was raised in uh, were imploded, like, 15 years ago, I think they blew them up. <laughs> but um, we moved there, and um, but there was a lot of dysfunction in our home. My dad was a functioning alcoholic. My mother, I, I believe, um, suffered a lot from depression. Uh, we were poor. Um, we lived in this very tiny place with seven people, nine, nine people sharing one little bathroom, that kind of thing. So life was uh, uh, difficult sometimes, um, emotionally. Uh, certainly spiritually, there wasn't a lot of God in our house, though I did have two grandmothers. Um, my mother's mom was a fervent believer, and uh, she had raised my mother in a Baptist church, and my mother walked away from that in her uh, teenage years. But um, so I was, and then my, my father's stepmother was also a 
fervent church lady, she was in the AME church. So we would go back and forth from the Black Baptist Church to the Black A. Uh, no, not the AME. She was a Kojic. I'm sorry. I got my initials wrong. Church of God in Christ. <laughs> They're kind of Pentecostal and really lively. And so I was familiar with church, but going to church with your grandmother was kind of uh, really kind of not fun. <laughs> And uh, my, especially my Koja grandmother, we would go to church and, you know, I'd be, we'd be there all day um, through the evening and sometimes into the next day. So as a teenager, you know, as I was growing up in this, in this environment, I really loved my grandmothers because they, you know, being with them was fun, but um, also we ended up in church a lot. So I decided that religion was not really for me. Jesus was not really for me, but I promised myself that before I died... I would become a Christian because I knew that was important, <laughs> but it was a long way off. <laughs> um, so um, I got through elementary school, went to high school, and uh, it was at that point um, that a friend, just I thought kind of randomly, invited me on a Friday afternoon after school to go with her to a church picnic. Well, she didn't say church. She just said picnic. <laughs> and it's going to be fun. There'll be a lot of teenagers and only cost a quarter. Go ask your mom. Well, I got permission from my mom. Long story short, I ended up going to this picnic. And everything my friend had said about it was true. It was great. We had fun. I met this crazy guy who tried to drown me. We were in a, in a rowboat. He's sitting in the front row. I later married him. <laughs> Um, I've been familiar with, uh, and I actually met Randy, I guess, that night or about that time. And I, the, the one thing I knew about Randy, we lived in the same neighborhood, and I'd see him around. We actually went to the same elementary school. But I'd seen him one day on the bus, the public bus, and he was reading a Bible. And I walked by him and thought, gee, that's odd. <laughs> so there we are at this uh, picnic having a great time. And, and at one point, somebody said, okay, it's time for devotions. And that's when the penny dropped. And I realized, oh, no, this is church. <laughs> Get ready to be bored. Um, but basically, what devotions were, we all gathered around a campfire, and it was other teenagers. That, that night, I met teenagers um, from all over the city of Newark and practically every other high school, and including the one I, I was attending, um, had kids at that youth group. And uh, devotions consisted of a couple of these teenagers that I'd met and had a great time with telling about how Jesus um, was helping them daily <laughs> to live their lives. And uh, I'd always kind of perceived God as being up in heaven, far away, not really connected. Um, but they talked about Jesus helping them with problems at school, helping them with problems with their parents. And I was like, well, if that's really who Jesus is, maybe I need to get to know him now and not wait for heaven. Uh, so eventually, after attending that uh, youth group several times, I did pray to receive Christ, and um, my life in Jesus began that night. Um, our pastor, our, our church there in Newark, the church that I eventually joined, um, was a church that was pastored by a white man, um, but, and, uh, and a lot of the elders were white. It was, it was basically a, a racially mixed church. Um, but it, was, it had started out a white church that during that time of transition in Newark made the conscious decision to not flee to the suburbs, but to plant themselves there. And they declared themselves missionaries to Newark. And they were winning people to Christ, um, I being one of them and in that youth group. But also our pastor would take us out and do evangelism. Uh, we, he formed us into a, a gospel team where we 
would sing and learn to give our testimonies to perfect strangers on the street or in churches and schools. Um, so that was, that was my life as a believer. Um, still living in an unbelieving household. Um, my family did not, my mother became a believer years later and my dad before he died, thankfully, I believe he came to faith. But um, that was my life as a teenager. Um, when I finished high school, my, our pastor, one of uh, the things he did with the, us kids in the youth group, especially those he considered leaders, was um, when we graduated was to get us into a Christian college. And then I think he kind of thought his job was done. <laughs> so he didn't care where we went as long as it was a place that had a decent confession of faith. And I managed to graduate from high school and not apply to any Christian college or any college at all. I had no models for college. <laughs> Everybody in my family graduated, got a good job, supported yourself, didn't make trouble. Um, but um, so I just didn't really want to go to college. That the, but the summer after I uh, finished high school, I met a Covenant College recruiter kind of randomly, and I finally completed my application, and that, fa that fall, I ended up at Covenant College <laughs> on Lookout Mountain in Georgia. So I moved from the projects of Newark, New Jersey to Lookout Mountain. I don't know if you know anything about Lookout Mountain. <laughs> it's, one of the, it's one of those real old money places. Um, so that was major culture shock. But um, I was there for a few months, um, and I was coming out of chapel, one day, and there on a bulletin board was, where, and oh, I should say, <laughs> I was only the second black person to go to Covenant College. <laughs> the year before I got there, an, an African-American male, Joe, was there, and I was only the second African, first female to go to Covenant and graduate. So, you know, there were, there were <laughs> I felt a little lonely <laughs> there. Um, I was coming out of chapel, and there were photographs on the bulletin board outside of chapel of black people. And I was like, really? <laughs> they exist here. Um, where are they? I need to find them. And uh, so I, d I went around trying to figure out who these kids were. It was mostly black children. And I realized that a group of Covenant College faculty and staff had read a book by an a black evangelist named Tom Skinner, Black and Free. And... Um, this was, uh, this was around the time of the Newark riots and the Detroit riots, and our country was kind of, it seemed to be burning down over race and um, racial issues. Um, <clears throat> so they read this book, and they, after, after they read the book, they thought, well, we need to do something. So they started a Sunday school, downtown Chattanooga. They called it the Third Street Sunday School, and... Um, I became a volunteer in that Sunday school. We would go down, we would go to church on Lookout Mountain, and then we'd go downtown, knock on doors, find children who might be willing to come with us. Sometimes we had to get them dressed <laughs> to come with us. And we took them to Sunday school, and we did that ministry for um, several years. Um, Brandy eventually moved to Chattanooga and uh, joined that ministry. But that Sunday school was where the beginnings, I mean, this is, these are your beginnings. We began with little black kids <laughs> on Sunday morning in a Sunday school. But that little Sunday school eventually became our church, New City Fellowship, um, which celebrated its 40th year two years ago. And um, 
So God has done a lot for us and um, with us, in spite of ourselves, I guess. Well, my wife has been a significant person, obviously, in my life and in the life of our church. It was interesting. I uh, was born in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, my father abandoned my family when I was four years old, put us on a train, and sent us to New Jersey. Uh, That's where my mother's parents lived, in the city of Newark. And uh, within a year or so, my mom's life really fell apart. Uh, both uh, emotionally and financially, and uh, she got pregnant by a guy who she was not my dad, not married to. My grandparents were very moral people, so she gave that child up for adoption and uh, turned around and got pregnant again. And this was really the lowest point in my mother's life. By this time, we had moved into city housing projects. We were on welfare. And, uh, you know, so we were a statistic. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but Newark would be called the worst city in America. And uh, it was a corrupt city, the mafia-controlled city hall. Uh, When we were in high school, most of the city council went to prison. Um, The uh, housing projects of Newark, we we had more federal housing projects in Newark than any other city in America Uh, because of the corruption. Uh, To get federal dollars, uh, they would declare whole neighborhoods uh, condemned, and that made way for these projects to be built. And the construction, of course, was uh, done by unions controlled by the mafia. The materials were substandard. Uh, It's just an American tragedy in many ways. At the same time, the city was being transformed racially. As Joan said, I don't know how many of you have heard about the Great Migration, but uh, many, many African Americans left the South, uh, especially in between the two wars and then right after. And, uh, you know, a lot of black servicemen coming back to the South, and the South uh, had the largest population of African Americans. And uh, after coming back from war, there was all this uh, segregation. And so they decided to leave sharecropping and leave the, uh, the, con- the countryside and move up to the cities where there was industry, where there were jobs, where there was education. So black folks started to move in. And of course, what a lot of white middle-class folks did was to move out. And, you know, it was... Um, people were looking for housing and... Federal housing uh, at least had heat in the winter, you know. Uh, So you paid your rent, and if you were low income enough, you could qualify to be there. And so my family moved in, and right at that lowest point in my mother's life, another single-parent mom in that project invited my mother out to a, uh, uh, a week of evangelistic meetings at a little house church. And there was an evangelist there. His name was Kennedy Smart. And uh, if you're familiar at all with the history of the PCA, you know he was one of the founders of the PCA, and he was a friend of my pastor. It was, this was a very uh, an independent church. My pastor, he didn't like being connected with anybody too much, so 
he decided we were an interdenominational church. And, you know, once you call yourself that, it takes the rest of your life explaining that to people, what that is. But basically, we were just an independent church. And, um, but my pastor was a fervent um, evangelist, really wanted to win people to Christ. And as the city changed, as Joan said, the leadership of that small church said, we're not leaving. Uh, we're going to stay and we're going to try to reach out and win people to the Lord. And the Lord blessed them. People and my family was part of it. My mom went to that meeting. The next day, Kennedy Smart and my pastor came to my house and the projects led our family to Christ. And uh, one of the things that I tell people when I preach in prisons or I preach uh, to people in hard places, I said, you know, Jesus did not show up with a moving truck to take us to the Christian suburbs, but he moved in. And uh, that church discipled my family out of poverty. And uh, I, this is uh, one of the things that now as we try to train churches and teach people about ministry to poor people, uh, we try to help them understand that poor people can be discipled out of poverty, not just serviced. We have a lot of uh, drive-by mercy these days. We have mercy tourism. You go through a neighborhood, maybe you do a service project, Maybe you spend a few hours as a volunteer, the boys club or the YMCA. But it's amazing how many churches today are not trying to win poor people to Jesus and bring them into the church. And we especially, we'll get more uh, into this as we go on through the weekend, but one of our great challenges in the PCA is we're really good at our families, but we don't know how to expand ourselves to everybody else's family. And we will not win the people in uh, the slums, the ghettos, the reservations, the trailer park. We will not win them to Christ until we are willing to raise other people's children. Just tell you that flat out. And one of the things about this church was that they really came after our family and really raised us in the faith. And so we lived in the projects till I left to go to college. Uh, my pastor, again, as Joan said, believed in getting young people to a Christian college. He hooked me up with a millionaire. Um, he said, tell me your story. I told him how I'd come to Christ. He said, I'll pay your way anywhere you want to go. So I got out a book of Christian colleges and looked up California. That's the only state I looked up because it was as far from Newark <laughs> as I could get. And uh, in God's mercy, I went out to Biola University um, outside of Los Angeles there, and, of course, immediately got immersed in ministry in Watts and Compton, which was like going back to Newark. <laughs> and uh, Joan and I, you know, the night Joan came to that youth group, I was, we were waiting to get picked up by our pastor. Hardly anybody had any cars, so our pastor and his wife would spend two hours picking up all these young people before youth group, and two hours after it was over, taking everybody home. And so we would stand there waiting on the corner for him to come. She came around the corner. I was 15, and as soon as I saw her, I knew I would marry her. And uh, I didn't tell her that uh, at the time. But in God's mercy, the Lord let that happen for us. And so I wound up transferring to covenant by the leading of the Holy Ghost. Some say it was connected to Joan, may have been. 
uh, but I'm really happy that I went to Covenant and graduated from there. And as soon as I got there, Joan said, you have to come with me to be part of this little mission Sunday school. And so uh, I came and within, then by the next year, I was preaching there. We started worship services. The dean of the faculty would preach six weeks. Then he had me preach six weeks. And then he said, you preach. And uh, so as a college student, I was preaching. And because uh, I knew uh, from growing up in that youth group, I knew that God had called me uh, to preach. And, uh, but I, what I didn't realize is that God was also calling me really to urban ministry, to the city. And so that's pretty much been our life. It's where we grew up. It's who we are. And uh, all through uh, the years of doing ministry, that's what it's been about. So in God's providence, went away to Covenant Seminary. And my senior year, the elders of that little mission, Sunday school, had now become a worshiping uh, mission they came and got me my senior year, said, we want you to come back and organize us as a church. And so I became the planter of that church. And uh, Joan and I uh, were there, and I pastored that church for 36 years. And it grew, you know, it was interesting at the time. Uh, we were in the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. And if you can say that, it shows you how, how spiritual you are, you know. PCA is not very spiritual, only has three initials. But, uh, you know, that denomination also had um, a ministry to help plant churches. And so uh, the dean of the faculty and I, we went to this meeting. They flew us to Memphis. And we met with them. We told them what we were doing and how God was blessing. Some of the men around that group, they began to cry. I mean, it was, they were very moved at what the Lord was doing. And that night, we got home, and I got a call from Dr. Barker, and he said, uh, they voted not to support us. And I said, why? And he said, because they decided we would never be a self-supporting church. You're, he said, it's a great mission, and it'll always be a mission. It'll always be begging for money, because you're, you're doing something interracial and cross-cultural, it's not going to attract people. You're always going to work with poor people. And here's the reality. If you get 100 poor children saved and teach them about tithing and they tithe, you still have no money. And that's like the worst way you can plant a church. Because, you know, planting a church means somebody's got to pay the pastor. Have you figured that out yet? Your pastor really likes to get paid. And it helps his wife, you know. And uh, so they told us, you'll, the church, you know, is always going to be a mission. And uh, so New City grew to be about 1,100 people as a multi-site church. And uh, now as part of a network, uh, we are now in 70 cities and churches that are urban, cross-cultural, that include the poor, have joyful worship and sound biblical teaching. It's not, they're not all PCA. Uh, we have a, a, about a half dozen ministries that are not PCA, but overwhelmingly there is a movement within our denomination to, to plant and pursue this kind of ministry. And we thank God for it. It is amazing. And so uh, 
Now, uh, Joan and I, we stepped down about five and a half years ago. An African-American brother took over New City uh, there in Chattanooga. We still worship there, and, uh, but I'm on the road quite a bit. Joan gets to go with me, or I get to have her with me at least one time, one trip a month, and you got it, okay? So you got the trip. Um, but it's really exciting to see the work of God uh, in some really tough places. You know, whether it be in Chicago, New Orleans, Boston, San Diego, Baltimore, Atlanta, St. Louis, uh, some really hardcore places. And, uh, you know, some of our pastors have had to teach their kids when you hear the gunfire, do not look out the window, but lie down, um, especially in Chicago. Uh, one of the methods that we try to train t- churches with is how to do outdoor Bible clubs for children. We found that a very effective means of evangelism in the inner city. But uh, when I was up in Chicago talking to Pastor Brad Beyer, he said, we can't do that in our neighborhood. The police will not want us to do that because it becomes a bullet magnet. There's so many drive-by shootings. And yet God is blessing that ministry. Some of our churches are more middle class. And some of them struggle with the issues of culture. You know, when, uh, when you're in a cross-cultural church, what happens on the news affects you. When President Obama was running, you know, there, we have some great white conservative Christians in our congregation. And they're terrified of liberals. You know, so Obama, kind of liberal for a lot of white Presbyterians. And uh, don't say amen now. (laughs) But, uh, you know, the black folks in our church were ecstatic that finally a black man had become president of the United States. And all of a sudden, people get on social media, you know, and we had the same thing when Trump was elected. We have black folks in our church, black Christian folks, who cannot believe that if you are a Christian, you would vote for Trump. And at the same time, white Christians are saying, of course you would vote for Trump. He's against abortion. He's against gay rights. You know? And you have these people get on social media. If We have young black men in our church who get stopped quite frequently by the police. And so when they see a story on the news about another young black man who was shot, who was unarmed, they take it personally. They feel the threat. So they get on social media and they talk about it. Then they go to church and sitting next to them in our church in Chattanooga is a policeman that they've grown up knowing all their life. They go to church together. But they say some pretty vicious things on social media. So I've just told him, I said, I think God needs to break some of your fingers. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just tell you that. Some of you here may, I mean, probably never here in Jacksonville <laughs> would you have that problem. But I will tell you that sometimes we lose our Christianity when we get, on, when we get into politics. And we will take headlines, we will take rumor, we will take fake news, we will... We will take opinions and we'll trumpet them as if they were as true as God's word. And so our churches are not easy. I preached a sermon once at one of our churches in Atlanta, St. Paul's, 
And I said, what we're talking about here is doing church and making it harder. And that was the title of my sermon. Let's do church, but let's make it harder. Because, you know, we're talking about some hard stuff. It is not easy to take people from different cultures, especially from different backgrounds, who may have had hatred for one another. Some of the people who come into our churches, literally, in their heart, have had fear, bitterness, anger, rage against the very people they're going to church with. How is that possible? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And he takes people and he changes them. And he helps people love who... He helped people to love other people that formerly they were enemies with. And in a cross-cultural church, in a mixed church, you actually get to see that lived out. And it is not easy. Some churches, black and white folks can go to church together and they love the same theology. You know, we are Presbyterians, so we talk about Reformed theology. And a lot of people are really into Reformed theology. We'll talk more about this on Sunday, about some of our bad habits about being Reformed, and I am certainly reformed. I'm a member of the Tennessee Valley Presbytery, you know, in good standing, by the way. Um, but with all of that good theology that we have, we don't always do theology well in how we live out our lives together. And we fail sometimes in just learning how to treat each other with respect. So these kind of churches are hard. And if you're middle class, white or black, you might be able to do well together until we bring the poor people in. And then it gets, because, you know, there's something about poor people. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who's just temporarily poor. They're really middle class, but they've been out of work for a couple of days. All right? And, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're worried a little bit about how things are going to work out. Okay, I'm not referring to them as poor. I'm talking about real hardcore poverty, generational poverty that makes people dysfunctional. You know, the kind of people who have an economic emergency and disaster every other day. Those people, where do they go to church? And the, your answer, hopefully, as time goes on, should be here. Now, why would I say that? Because does anybody remember the commission of Jesus? What was Jesus commissioned to do when he read from the book of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4? Does anybody remember what that passage in Isaiah says? You can, you can read it for us if you, you know, you can cheat on this exam, it's okay. Open book. Hmm? Okay, that's part of it. Hmm? Open the eyes of the blind, but why don't you get to the beginning of the verse? Yeah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now, of course, you say, well, that, you know, you know that, that means the spiritually poor. No, it means the poor. 
the physically beat down poor. And the question is, why aren't we good at that? We, we live in a blessed country. We, we are in a, in a, it's an amazing place, really, when you think about it. The percentage of people in America who are middle class or above. Now, I know you hear on the news a lot of times about the 1% and about how the 1% own most of the wealth and everything. And that, you know, and may, that may be true. I, I don't know how much Bill Gates owns and, 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 and folks like him, you know, and I'm just really glad he and his wife give a lot of it away. Praise God for that. But even though we are not way up there, we're, we're not doing too bad as middle class folk. They might own a lot, but we own something. I mean, me and the bank, you know. We, we, we are one of the largest percentages of middle class people in the history of the world. Wealth and poverty have changed drastically over the last several hundred years. And our standard of living, our, the comforts we enjoy are just absolutely amazing. We have all of this blessing. And the Presbyterians, you know, of all the denominations in the country, we're the second richest. And I, now I'm going to tell you who the first is, and you'll want to go join that church. But uh, the Episcopalians are the, are the wealthiest uh, denomination among Protestants and Presbyterians are number two, man. We got the professionals. We have, you know, the doctors, the engineers, the business owners, the, the educators, you know, they're, we, we, we got a lot of smart, professional people and we like talking about theology a lot, you know. Uh, we just stink at reaching poor folk because here's the reality of what wealth has done to us and this is not just Presbyterians. This is our country. We are self-segregating into enclaves of the educated and wealthy and allowing the poor, forcing the poor, as it were, because they have no means to change their situation, into pockets of poverty. And, uh, and I'm not talking here about conservatives and liberals because you could almost do a demographic study in America of where major universities are, major research centers, major hospitals, and where those people, high intelligent folks, high educated folks, they all become a new ghetto. And it's really hard to get in. Um, you know how much it costs to live in San Francisco? You know how much it costs to live in New York City or in Boston? You know, and here's the question. Why are we not reaching the very people that Jesus was anointed to preach the gospel to? And here's another strange thing. The poor hear the gospel gladly. The poor actually like good news. They believe that, that an almighty God can help them. They believe that because they got no other resource. And so the very people who might be open to the gospel are the people we go to the gospel with the least. That makes no sense. 
So we, in the PCA, we like to plant churches, but we don't win many people to Christ. I mean, that's just the reality. We transfer people from other churches. We take, we let the Pentecostals and Baptists save the folk, and then we reform them. You know, we, we straighten out their theology and uh, get them on the right path. You know, now I, I know I'm saying some provocative things, but it's true. Uh, most Christians, after they've been saved five years, stop sharing their faith. And what we're trying to do is turn that around. We are trying to say to our churches, there is a harvest field of folk who need Jesus, but they don't need Jesus by you just driving by and shouting it out the window. Jesus saves. You need the Lord. They need people to show up at their house, sit down at their dinner table, They need people to pick up their kids Sunday after Sunday and bring them to Sunday school. They need people to sit with them in church over years and raise them as if they're an extension of your family. They need the church to pour the gospel and grace into their lives and to model it. I learned how to be a man and a husband and a father from the model of the men in my church. I could learn it no other way. But they were wonderful to my family. And uh, so that's kind of where we're coming from. That's what we're about. Um, And I think, am I supposed to stop at this point for questions? Yeah. (laughs) Why not? We do want to have some, uh, some time after each of these talks uh, to allow for some interaction, for some Q&A. And so We'd love if you have any questions, anything you'd like to uh, direct towards Randy or towards Joan, if you have any questions. Uh, <laughs> easy questions for Joan. Um, Randy, I'd love, you know, as I, as I was sitting there, I was thinking um, there are, you mentioned how, you know, it's one thing when you've got middle class people together. There's already, you know, there's, if, there, if it's a multi-ethnic group of middle class people, you've got some barriers. Once you add the poor, it's another what are some ways that a church uh, like ours could put stumbling blocks that keep the poor from feeling welcome, included, loved, we may not be aware of? Hmm. Very good question. Uh, and, you know, I will tell you that once you're in a culture, it's not always easy to look at it from outside. You know, you live it. And you don't realize how other people might see it. And sometimes as you talk to them and you realize, oh, I never, I never thought about that. But a lot of our typical Presbyterian churches are very literate. You know, I don't know, have you ever gone to a Bible study and they hand out Bibles or you bring your Bible and every they say, would each person go around the room and read a verse? Do you know what that means to somebody who can't read, who is illiterate? You know how shaming that is. And so almost all of our worship now, and it's getting uh, a lot worse in the PCA where we have more and more liturgy, more and more written liturgy. And so it's, it's very educated. The vocabulary that we use, uh, a lot of reading. And one of the things we suggest to, to churches is, you know, you ought to have an on-ramp If you're going to have Sunday school, you ought to have one Sunday school class that's just Bible stories. 
where somebody teaches a different Bible story every week, you don't force people to read, you just tell the story. You know who did that? Jesus. Just dropping a name here. All right. You know, the, the most effective teacher who ever lived, he told stories. And um, we're not really good at stories. Uh, you know, we, our pastors are trained. We know our stuff. But the problem is that we haven't really been trained to cross culture. And the danger is we become an elitist culture that excludes other people. Not, not you know, nobody sat down in a, in a room with a couple of people and said, how do, we, how do we keep them out? Nobody said that. But we, we, we have created a culture that intimidates other folks. Now, by the way, church can be intimidating to any non-Christian. You know, we talk and sing and act differently in church than we do in any other context. And if you're a non-Christian or you grew up without God in your life or anything, it's like going to Mars when you come into church and you go, what? What just happened? Um, and so creating on-ramps. And by the way, our, the biggest hookup you have with people that come into our church is love. Loving implies a relationship. So in other words, it's not just we do church, they, a stranger walks in, and we're friendly to them. No, we're talking about going into their neighborhoods, into their homes, meeting them in their turf, and, and, and creating that relationship, and then bringing them in. And that's the, the easiest, best way uh, for folks to come in uh, to the church. But it's scary! I, I would just... Will you agree with me? And you know what else? It's, it, here's, here's several problems. It's scary, and it takes time. And, you know, if you're raising your own family, you're trying to figure out how to stretch that time now. And here, that's why I said, make it harder. I've come to make your life harder. I, I will tell you that... Uh, if it, the choices you make based on your sense of calling and vision will identify areas that you need to pursue, but God will give you grace to pursue them. God will actually show you where you can give time up, where you can get courage from, how you can break down those barriers. And it, I, I will tell you up front, this is a life of faith. I'm not here to give you, okay, do these 10 things. I'll just tell you one thing. you got to trust God. You're going to have to trust God. If you really feel this is what God is calling for you as a church. But, you, but I'm, I, I came here to tell you it's going to come with a, a cost. And that one of the questions is, can we pay the price? And some of you will not be able to. Some of you, if you stay in this church, and this is the way this church goes, some of you will leave because you cannot figure out how to be a part of it and you'll feel guilty and you'll get angry and little things will happen that will give you an excuse to go. And we have had people be part of our church and there are several breaking points. One break is like when they have kids 
and they, they get their kids are into Sunday school with inner city kids and they, they get uncomfortable. High school, you know, we have a lot of families in America, they decide on church based on the comfort level of their teenagers. If their teenager says to them, I don't like this church, the parents say, okay, done with that church. And they'll find a youth group or a church that their teenagers like because they want their kids to come to church. They want them to be happy in church. The problem with that is the parents have absolutely, evidently, no commitment to what their kids need to be about. If you raise self-indulgent children, you create self-indulgent adults. And a lot of our uh, middle-class churches are doing just that. We see youth group as a babysitting service. We don't see it as a mobilization effort to launch young people into the service of God. But that's a separate subject. But uh, <laughs> next question. <laughs> All right. Uh, does anybody else have uh, questions? Willie. Mm. Well, and, and this, by the way, uh, did everybody hear the question? What, were, uh, what are some of the challenges you faced uh, in making sure that the leadership of the church reflected the community of the congregation? Mm. And we had to face that pretty early on. Uh, the question, you know, and, and, and there are a lot of subsidiary questions that went around that. Like here were a bunch of white folks coming to a black community, planning this Sunday school, and, and a lot of it was done in ignorance. You know, it was ignorance of the black church, ignorance of what God was already doing in the community. And it took us some years to figure that out. I eventually joined a group called the Black Ministers Union. And I was part of that for 25 years. And they changed their name, I guess, because I was in it. Uh, to the clergy koinonia. But, um, and, I, and I just say that because I, I want to give honor to some of those men and their congregations who had been there for years, serving the Lord, preaching the gospel. And a lot of those men were bivocational. Uh, in Chattanooga, we had a lot of foundries. And so I knew some pastors who would work all week in the foundry. And I don't know if you don't understand what I'm saying, but a foundry is hard physical work. And they would work in that, that dirty, hot place all week long. And then on the weekends, they would pastor. And they built their churches that way. And they were, you know, some of them were great and godly men. And they taught me a lot. But in the early days, we, you know, we, we were coming down. And now there's also this reality in the black community. There are a lot of bad churches. And when you go to poor communities, there's a lot of religion among the poor. All right? Tons of storefront churches, and today a lot of prosperity gospel stuff. Lots of religion among the poor, but just like among white people, there's a lot of bad religion. And one of the great gospel songs is, Have You Got Good Religion? And so we wanted to come into the community and say, We want to be, as Reformed people, we said, We believe this is the best way to understand the scriptures. This is what we think God is teaching. Why can't black folk have that? Why can't poor people have that? You just got to be able to say it so folks can understand it. And so 
as we did that, people would say to us, you know, they, they would question our integrity. You know, why are you doing this? And is this just tokenism? And, and, and at first, you know, what was, it was kind of, Joan was one of the few black students at Covenant College coming down. The rest of the folks were white. So they had this church with all these black children and these white college students and white faculty. And in those days, none of those adults that came down had any of their own children yet. They were all kind of young adults. So it was a very strange looking group. <laughs> and uh, people mocked us and said, this will never go anywhere. But here's the thing, those kids grew up. And black adults came. And whole families came. And, and, and so that, that began to develop. And we knew that black folk needed black leaders. You know, one of the worst messages we could send is that only white people know this stuff. Only white people have the right message. Only white people can pastor a church. And, and the church we grew up in was very mixed, and so we knew that wasn't true. And so we pursued diligently from our earliest days uh, the raising up of uh, black men and women who could take places of leadership. Now today in the PCA, we have about 56 or 57 African-American teaching elders in the whole denomination. That's all. We just ordained one three weeks ago up in Washington, D.C., Pastor Yancey. But when I started we had like one. And it's really been exciting to see. And all of these guys kind of know their number. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> and so the, 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 the question is, you know, if you're going to do a cross-cultural, where do we find that kind of leadership? Now, here's my first answer. Grow your own. Win young people to Jesus, disciple them, train them, engage them in ministry, equip them and support them in their education and in their ministry, and you will have your own. That's the very first thing. Sometimes God in his mercy sends you an angel, evidently Will is an angel, you know, who's here in the community, you know, and wants to... Uh, finishes education, theological education, and, and finds a home. Hallelujah! You don't know how blessed you guys are. That is, a, that, is, that is fantastic. And sometimes uh, you will find brothers from other, you know, who have come into the PCA, and they, they're looking for a place to minister. And uh, just remember this, just like with white preachers, yeah, uh, one of our great black preachers preached a sermon once, uh, about this, he called it uh, hire them and they will come. <laughs> and he was talking about the idea if we can just hire one black guy, other black people will come. Do you realize how horrible the pressure is on that one black guy? <laughs> I mean, if he is not perfect, if he, you know, I mean, 
You know, it's like the old racial thing where it said, you're such a credit to your race. You know, that's the kind of idiocy that, you know, you say you have to represent all black folk. Willie cannot tell you what all black folk think. And hopefully he never tries. Hopefully, and pray for our brother, pray that he is a man of integrity and uh, a man of honesty and humility and a friend. But not everybody um, is as innocent as they look. So just like white folks that we've had, we've had plenty of white preachers who were wolves in sheep's clothing. And there are black preachers like that too. We've had plenty of white guys who just wanted a job because they thought ministry was a place they could get a paycheck and weren't really willing to be a servant to the people. So you have all the same issues. So don't assume, you know, like the Bible says, lay hands suddenly on no man. So, but unless you are conscious about it, unless you are intentional about it, it won't happen. Here's the reality. If you have a job opening in the PCA, and you say, we need a pastor, we need an associate pastor, an assistant pastor. You're going to get 100 white guys apply for that job. Because we are gifted with white guys. That's the PCA gift. We got a lot of them. And they've, they've gone to seminary. They, they want an opportunity to do ministry. And some of them are really sharp, good men. Hallelujah. And so if you're a cross-cultural church and you say that leadership says, yeah, but we're looking for an African-American pastor, you're going to have somebody in the church say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't like that. That's like uh, affirmative action. That's political. Why don't you just ask for the Holy Spirit to show you who the right guy is? And our answer is that the Holy Spirit has shown us it should be a black guy. <laughs> because... He has called us to be intentionally a cross-cultural church. And we have to raise up indigenous leadership in order for that to function. Does, does that answer the question at all? So. Why don't you hand her the mic and Joan can answer her own question. No, he was asking about how you uh, get... Uh, minority leadership. It's the same way we get all of our leadership. We have a, an elder in our church who runs every year um, a leadership training course, and I think it begins in January and goes through... November to no, May. November to May. And he has a set curriculum. He has his own faculty. We all get called in when it's time for, for us to teach. And um, so it's an ongoing thing. So what that allows the church to do is, is as leadership raises it raises... I mean, as the leaders become aware of leaders, they can funnel them into this course because it's always happening. And it's not just for people that have been elected elders or deacons or deaconesses. <laughs> it's for anybody who's interested in getting this training. So it's become like a, a train, uh, an engine that kind of produces leaders right. year after year. So one of the things that every church needs, by the way, every church needs is consistent leadership training. Um, we have produced a model where somehow leaders 
come from mysterious places. You know, all of you should be focused on, le- on becoming trained at, and ministry as leaders. Because here's the reality. When, when are you going to die? Do you, anybody told you the date, date yet? Did you get your date? Could it happen tonight? Yes. Now, none of us, none of us believe that. We all believe we have time. And so we put off recruiting, training, and delegating responsibility to young people. That's just absolutely foolish. Leadership development starts the day you come to Christ. And what it means is, and and the faster the pastor and the elders give ministry away, the faster the church grows. And in order to do that, again, as this, the word intentionality is so important. You've got to train leaders and you've got to say, we need you and here is the work, take it. And it's a constant process in a church. And one of the worst things you can do in a church, you know, I used to have, the, and I made these mistakes as a young pastor. I said, well, when do you know when a guy's going to be an elder or a deacon? Or They said, well, you wait until you see them doing that kind of ministry and then you, you get a group together and you train them. Okay, so that meant every few years I'd find somebody that I thought, yeah, he's doing it. And we didn't, ever, we didn't all of a sudden I realized all my elders were getting old, <laughs> including me. And where were the, and so as a group of elders, we sat down and said, uh-uh. We will intentionally go after young people and call them. Now, when we were a very early church, we had young men as deacons and elders. We had no other choice. But as we became mature, we thought that only older men could be godly and wise. And that's just not true. So, uh, so if I die, huh? PCA's got a, you know, long line of white pastors. It's an assembly line. So we just get another one in. Uh, but Willie, you need to stay healthy, man. We, can't do that. <laughs> uh, we, got, we probably got time for about one more question. Anybody got a, another one? Alice. Let me repeat it just so we get it on the, everybody can hear. Uh, what, did, what did your church do about prayer and intentionality towards prayer in the planning of the church? It's a great thing about prayer is that it follows desperation pretty quickly. So if, if you're doing things that scare you, if you're doing things that are impossible, if you are doing things that you don't know the answers to, you pray. And so I think we were forced to pray uh, from our very early days about everything. Um, now, some people approach prayer as programs, prayer meetings, prayer groups, all of which I say praise the Lord for. Uh, but I would say that the model of, of believing that God wants you to do something and you not knowing how to do it will force you to your knees. So over the years, you know, we've done all kinds of prayer and fasting, all night prayers, uh, small group. We do a lot of our work with small groups. Um, 
But you can't do anything without prayer, especially this stuff. And, uh, you know, when, when your pastor and your leadership realizes, man, there's tension in the church. There's racial tension in the church. You got a weapon, and it's prayer. You know, if prayer for you is just, here's the list of sick, here's a list of missionaries, and it's really important that we get together and pray through this list, you are not desperate enough. Now, the great thing about getting sick and broke, you can't pay your bills, you start praying. And uh, so I guess what I'm trying to tell you is stay desperate. You ought to be taking risks for the gospel as a congregation and uh, not just approach prayer as a duty. Now, I think it is a duty, and it's a, it's a good one, but I will tell you, you'll pray faster from desperation. <laughs> you know, when people say, the only, thing, the only thing left we could do was pray. Well, Maybe you should have done that first, but first, during, and, 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 and always. So I, I haven't probably given you a good answer, but, you know, I think our people have prayed quite a bit, and I, I think especially as they've loved each other. I'll give you an example. Right now, one of the black men in our church, uh, Paul Green, who has been the director of our community development program, his son just donated a kidney to him. And Paul almost died in the operating room. And he's had several surgeries. And now after all of it, that kidney's not working. And so the whole church has just been crying out to God for him. And I think that's one of the beauties of relationship in the body of Christ. When you see other people's desperation and you just go to the throne of grace uh, to pray for him. We'll probably have time for one more if anybody has another question. Yeah, I think, oh, do we have one that's been up? So how, essentially, how do you uh, go from ministering to kids to uh, but allowing parents to stay in destructive cycles, uh, go from that to actually reaching families and bringing mm-hmm. in adults? That's, that's, it's hard. It's tough. Uh, I will say that you need to intentionally pursue the parents and not settle for just working with children, or try, in a sense, to rescue the children from the parents. We, in, a, in the Reformed community, we believe in the covenant. We baptize our babies because we believe that they're holy to the Lord, as it says in 1 Corinthians 7.14. And because of that covenant, we, we really emphasize the, the uniqueness of the home to raise children. What's interesting is often when we do evangelism, we will actually cut out the parents. We will subvert their authority. Uh, One of the examples that we use, especially in helping the poor, is uh, what do you do for poor people at Christmas, where you'll have a lot of people get toys and money, and they'll they'll give them to the kids. And In Chattanooga, we have like Toys for Tots, the Marine Corps, the fire department, fire engines are going through the town with that siren. Santa's riding in the back of the hook and ladder. They pull up in front of a family's house. They get out. They got boxes of toys, knock on the door. The 
mom or dad opens the door, they come in, the kids get the presents, and the parents, in a sense, are embarrassed because I didn't have anything to give to my kids. So we learned the model of doing a Christmas store where as you work with families, you say, you can come to the store and buy a brand new gift that members of the church have donated for 10% of its real cost. And then we'll help you wrap it. You give the gift to your own kid. That's just one tiny way, but we really want to respect that God-given unique relationship. And I will tell you, we have some horrible homes some destructive parents. They are negligent. They, they're on drugs. They do terrible things even to their own children. If you took away every child from those kind of parents, America does not have enough foster care for that. We do not have enough halfway houses for that. So the church has to be very tender in those relationships. And I mean, obviously, if a child is in danger, then you have to call the state and have them step in. And we've had to do that sometimes. But we try as hard as we can to use the children as an entrance into the home. Uh, but I will tell you, inevitably, you will deal, especially if you work with poor families, you will have some where the parents say, take my kids. They're, they're carte blanche. You can do whatever you want with them, which is kind of crazy. And so that means our responsibility is double, that we would really take care of them well. And God forbid that there should be any child sexual abuse within the church to those children. So you need to have good training and good rules, good governance over those things. That... <laughs> Larry's got, Larry remembers his question, but it's quick. So if we keep the, the question and answer quick, we got it. In regard to uh, children's work, or is that... Yeah, raising up leaders, yes. Not, no. What we do is it should be a very small part of the ministry of the church. God has given us pastors the job to enable the saints to do the work of the ministry. So I am a success when I do as little as possible. Amen. <laughs> that, was, that was my goal. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, uh, let's stand. We're going to sing uh, one more song and, uh, and then pray together.